Okay, we are totally happy to have you, brothers and sisters in the faith, in another study of the book of the Holy Bible. We're going to look into the book of Judges. So last week we began our study of Gideon and how he was able to defeat the Midianites, although Yahuwah only allowed him to use 300 of his men and did battle against 135,000 Midianites because of the help and power of Yahuwah. Yahuwah used Gideon to deliver the people of Israel. However, about one, about 15,000 of the Midianites were able to escape. And so what did Gideon decide to do? Judges 7, 24, 25. Gideon also sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down to attack the Midianites, cut them off at the shallow crossings of the Jordan at Beth Barah, so all the men of Ephraim did as they were told. They captured Oreb and Zeb, the two Midianite commanders, killing Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. And they continued to chase the Midianites. Afterward, the Israelites brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan River. And so after the military victory over most of the forces of the Midianites, about 120,000 of, uh, 120, of them who were uh, killed or put to death, the 15,000 that were scattered and who were able to flee. What Gideon did was to summon some of the other tribes, Ephraim specifically, to do some mop-up work of the job. And so after this was done, what did Ephraim say to Gideon? What did the tribe say to him? Let's read the book of Judges, chapter 8, the verses 1. Then the people of Ephraim asked Gideon, Why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us when you first went out to fight the Midianites? And they argued heatedly with Gideon. It's kind of odd and bizarre. So here are the Ephraimites. They were upset and they were having an argument with Gideon. Why didn't you call us? To go fight with you in the first place. Why are you only calling upon us now to kind of get to do the mop-up work, so to speak? And so they were very upset because they were not called upon in the initial fight against the Midianites. So if you were Gideon and you were the leader, the military leader of these tribes who went against the Midianites, how would you feel? Right? How would you feel when Ephraim is kind of going at you like this? Well, there's a principle in the Holy Scriptures that is very applicable for us today. And it's in the book of Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. So when people kind of attack us verbally, you know, they're emotionally angry at you and you respond with anger. What are you virtually, what are you actually doing? You kind of like pouring gasoline on the flame, right? And so that's not a good way to handle that. This is why the Bible tells us a gentle answer deflects anger. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. When we are leaders, we need to learn how to listen to the people that we lead. Sometimes they will get upset. Sometimes they'll be angry, but you being the leader does not mean that you can do whatever you want. We need to listen. We need to provide a gentle answer. And this is also true when it comes to parenting. If you are a father or a mother and sometimes things happen, we need to provide, we need to control our emotions and our anger and provide a gentle answer. So we know Gideon is confronted by the Ephraimites, and what does he say? Let's read what it says in the book of Judges 8, 2 to 3. But Gideon replied, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abiezer? God gave you victory over Oreb and Zeb, the commanders of the Midianite army. What have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, their anger subsided. So you can tell Gideon had an emotional, emotionally intelligent response. 
he tells the Ephraimites, you were able to have victory over the two commanders of the Midianite army, Oraband, Z. That's a great accomplishment, even better than what I was able to do. And so this appeased the anger of the Ephraimites. But it does tell us something about the Ephraimites and perhaps many of the tribes. And it's the problem of jealousy. And so they were jealous because they were not in the beginning of the fight. They were only called upon towards the end or the concluding parts of the fight. Perhaps because of this jealousy, there was a lack of unity and they could not really be firm in their calling as the people of God. Nevertheless, Gideon, he provided a gentle answer. And so he was able to reunite uh, the people of Israel. And so what happened when they pursued further the, uh, the rest of the Midianites? Let's read Judges 8, 4 to 5. Gideon then crossed the Jordan River with his 300 men. And though exhausted, they continued to chase the enemy. When they reached Sukkoth, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, please give my warriors some food. They are very tired. I am chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And so after the initial victories, the job is not yet finished. And we all know when you leave the work of God unfinished, when we compromise on what Yahuwah wants done, eventually he's going to bite you. It's going to be a snare later on. So they learned their lesson. So through the leadership of Gideon, even though they were tired, they were exhausted, the 300 men continued their pursuit against Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Verse 6, but the officials of Sukkoth replied, catch Zeba and Zalmunna first, and then we will feed your army. Not a good response, because what Gideon was hoping for was that they would feed. The people in Sukkoth would feed and kind of replenish and nourish the exhausted 300 men of Gideon. I mean, it makes sense, because you all belong to the same people of God, right? And so it was natural to expect that they would be fed by their brothers, because they're all brothers. They're all Israelites. But then what did the officials of Sukkot reply? Cat Ziba and Zalmunna first. Then we will feed your army. Not exactly an expression of loyalty, right? Not exactly an expression of kindness and helpfulness. And so how did Gideon feel about that? Let's read. So Gideon said, after Yahuwah gives me victory over Ziba and Zalmunna, I will return and tear your flesh with the thorns and briars from the wilderness. From there, Gideon went up to Peniel and again asked for food, but he got the same answer. So he said to the people of Peniel, after I return in victory, I will tear down this tower. And so Gideon was upset and he promises after Yahuwah gives the victory and something that we need to kind of note here whenever Gideon is fighting against the enemy he's always giving credit to where credit is due who is that Yahuwah it's not because of him and he acknowledges that and so he says when Yahuwah gives me the victory I will return and tear your flesh in other words what Gideon is going to do he's going to punish these people who refuse to help his men. We have to keep in mind, beloved brethren, even today, it is our responsibility to help our brethren who are in need. Gideon took that seriously, and we need to also take that seriously uh, today. And so what happened after the work was about to be concluded, after Ziba and Zalmunna would eventually be captured? Let's read. By this time, Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkar with about 15,000 warriors. All that remained of the allied armies of the east, where 120,000 had already been killed. Gideon circled around the caravan route, caravan route east of Noba, 
and Jogbeha taking the Midianite army by surprise. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two Midianite kings, fled, but Gideon chased them down and captured all their warriors. So Gideon was successful in chasing them down, and so he was on his way to completing the work Yahuwah has given to him. After this, Gideon returned to the battle by way of Erespas, where he captured a young man from Sukkoth and demanded that he write down the names of all the 77 officials and elders in the town. Gideon then returned to Sukkoth and said to the leaders, here are Ziba and Zalmunna. When we were here before, you taunted me saying, catch Zima and Zalmunna first, and then we will feed your exhausted army. So true to his word, Gideon, after capturing Ziba and Zalmunna, goes back to Sukkoth and he tells them that you are going to pay for what you had done. And so what did Gideon do? And Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson, punishing them with thorns and briars from the wilderness. This was probably a scourging, right? He also tore down the tower of Kiniel and killed all the men in the town. That's pretty brutal, right? But th that was the punishment that Gideon felt was warranted because they had no desire to help their fellow brethren fight against the Midianites. And we have to remember what our king Yahusha said, if you're not for me, you are against me. If you're not helping me gather, you are helping, you are scattering. And so when it comes to doing the work of Yahuwah Abba, we need to be united and we need to support and help one another because ultimately it's not our work, it is Yahuwah's work. And so uh, Zeba and Zalmunna, have been captured. And so what does Gideon decide to do next? Let's read. And Gideon asked Ziba and Zalmunna, the men you killed at Tabor, what were they like? Like you, they replied. They all had the look of a king's son. They were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. So apparently Ziba and Zalmunna killed the brothers of Gideon. Gideon explained, uh, exclaimed, as surely as Yahuwah lives, I wouldn't kill you if you hadn't killed them. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did, did not draw his sword, for he was only a boy and was afraid. And Ziba and Zalmunna said to Gideon, be a man, kill us yourself. So Gideon killed them both and took the royal ornaments from the necks of their camels. And so that basically concludes the battle, the physical battle against the Midianites. Because for a long, long time, the Midianites were cruel oppressors of the people of Israel. They would take the cattle, right? They would take all their props and they were for the people of Israel forced into hiding. And so they were doing cruel things against the people of Israel. And so Yahuwah uses Gideon and his 300 men to completely destroy the Midianites. And so once this happened, once the Midianites were destroyed, what did Israel say to Gideon? My beloved brethren, please pay close attention to what happens next. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our ruler rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. And so after the victory, the military victory against the Midianites, they're now requesting Gideon to be their ruler. Not only Gideon, but also his son and grandson. It's supposed to be a dynasty. They will only want to be led by a descendant, a son of Gideon. And so when they were requesting for Gideon to be their ruler, essentially what they were asking for was they want Gideon to be their king. This shows us a lack of faith 
on the part of the people of Israel. They want someone that they can see, right? Someone tangible instead of Yahuwah leading them as their king. But what does Gideon say to them in response to the request? This is what Gideon says. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. Yahuwah shall rule over you. And so this was a good gesture on the part of Gideon. He knows his limitations. He is the instrument of Yahuwah. He is not to replace Yahuwah. The people of Israel wanted to replace Yahuwah. They wanted Gideon, whom they can see. But Gideon says, no, I'm not the king. There's only one king that you have. He's up there. That's Yahuwah. The people of Israel were supposed to be a theocracy, led by God. But they did not want that. They wanted to be like the other nations. And so they were requesting Gideon be our king. But Gideon says, no, I will not rule over you. Yahuwah shall rule over you. However, in spite of this manifestation of great faith and loyalty to Yahuwah in the heart of Gideon, there's something that he requests. What is that? Let's read the book of Judges 8.24. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And so the people of Israel, because they were the ones who conquered the Midianites, they got all the earrings for plunder, and they were made of gold. And that's a lot of gold. And so what did Gideon request. Well, Gideon said, I would like that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. And of course, because they were the ones who did a lot of the work, doing the fighting, doing the conquering, doing a lot of the dirty work, they kind of deserve the plunder, right? But Gideon was requesting if he could have it. And what was the answer of the Israelites? Let's read. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment. And each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold, the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's a lot of gold. About 50 to 70 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. And so here's Gideon. He collects all this gold from the people of Israel. So he has all this gold. Question I want to ask you, is it wrong? Was it wrong for Gideon to ask for all that gold? Probably, probably not. I don't think it's wrong. I mean, when you take gold, taking the gold isn't wrong. In fact, it could be appropriate to reward the courageous commander, Gideon, because of a successful military victory. The problem comes with what Gideon does with the gold. You see, money is kind of neutral. Money per se is not evil. And there's a popular verse that goes something like this. Blank is the root of all evil. Fill in the blank. What is the root of all evil? Is it money? No, not money per se. We all need money. Money is not the root of all evil. What's the root of all evil? The love of money. So money is neutral. It's a neutral element. It's in how we afford it and how we spend it that kind of allows for sin to take over. It would also be wrong if Gideon, if he would keep asking for more and more of these offerings right that would be wrong because that would be a form of virtual taxation and that's not what Yahuwah God wants for those who are his leaders when they lead his people and so here's Gideon he takes the gold nothing wrong with the gold but what he does with the gold is a cause for concern what did he do with the gold let's read verse 27 Gideon 
made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And so what does Gideon do with the gold? He takes the gold and he creates an ephod. Does this remind you of an event in the past that we need to see if there's a connection between the two? Remember when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, takes Joshua with him so that he can receive the Ten, the ten Commandments, the tablets. When he comes back down, what happened? They were seen dancing and they were worshiping what? The golden calf. Remember Aaron? He asked for all the jewelry, got the gold and formed a golden calf out of it. Does this sound kind of like the same? Kind of like the same, does it not? Right? And so he creates a gold into an ephod. But unlike Aaron in the past, I don't think Gideon would intentionally create an idol. Okay? He did not create an idol like a calf. Because a golden calf is obviously an idol. But he created a golden ephod, and his purpose for creating the golden ephod was not so that it would be an idol. Because after all, Gideon was the one who tore down the Canaanite idols to Baal and Astarte. We talked about that last week, right? In the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 28. And so probably there was a sign, maybe. <laughs> Right when he made the ephod made of gold, maybe there was a sign this is not to be worshipped. But what did the people do anyways? They worshipped. The people worshipped the ephod. This is why it was a sneer. And so it's something that we need to understand. Sometimes people are prone to idolatry. And idolatry does not have to be worshipping an actual statue that represents a false god. Because when you deify or glorify an object, even though that object is not quote-unquote a false god, it can still be an idol, right? I mean, there are many people today who idolize certain things, certain concepts. And there are people today who idolize and glorify buildings. And it's like, an ephod that is worship okay so this is what happens but Gideon that's not his intent so he continues to rule or he continues to lead uh, the people of Israel uh, thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon so Gideon was the judge for 40 years and he would lead the people of uh, Israel. And Gideon, who was also known as Jeru Baal, which means Baal will contend against him because he tore down the Baal idols and the, Ash the Ashereth idols. Uh, because of that, um, he was given that name because now Baal is focusing on him and he's going to fight against Gideon. Gideon is probably saying, come on. <laughs> Take me, because I have Yahuwah, God, who is defending me. So then Jerubal, Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons. That's a lot of sons. 70, 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. I want to pause here for a while. Because in the New Testament, it's quite obvious. Our King Yahushua himself says there's only one wife or one husband. And Yahushua says, ever since in the beginning, ever since the beginning of creation, the purpose of marriage is for one, per one male and one female. They are to unite together, not multiple wives. And so Yahuwah never endorsed multiple wives. However, in this case, Gideon had many wives. And if you will read the record of scripture, those who had multiple wives... It led to consequences which were not favorable when it comes to the advancement of the people of God and its purposes. So something to take note of there. And we're going to see 
the fruit or the consequence of having so many wives in the next study. And so let's go to verse 31. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. And we're going to talk about Abimelech next time. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Oprah of the Arbia's rites. As soon as Gideon died, what happens to Israel? <laughs> they prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal bereath their God. They forgot Yahuwah their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, despite all the good he has done for Israel. And so the pattern repeats itself. This is why we study scripture to identify patterns. Why? Because if we don't break the pattern, whatever the pattern led to is what we're going to also experience. So if a pattern leads to destruction, what do you got to do? Got to change the pattern. We got to learn from the pattern. That's why we were given uh, the scripture so that we can learn from the people of God and all their mistakes so we can put a stop to these destructive patterns. And so here we have Gideon. He's going to die. He dies, right? After his death, people of Israel, they go back to worshiping Baal. But the truth of the matter is, when you look at the cause the, and why right when he dies, they go swiftly into worshiping Baal. It's because the Israelites prostituted themselves. That's like an Hebrew idiom, which means they committed idolatry. They worship false gods called spiritual adultery. And so they prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal making Baal believe their God. However, when you really think about it, when did that start? When did the people of Israel prostitute themselves by worshiping the images? Well, this is like uh, the end, like the consequence. But what led to the consequence started while Gideon was still alive. Do you remember when this was kind of set up? Why the people of Israel was set up for this kind of failure? I want you to look at the term, the, the phrase prostituted themselves. When did they begin to prostitute themselves? When the ephod was set up. Israel prostituted themselves. And so even while Gideon was alive, the people of Israel, they were being set up for failure. Do you see that? Because of the snare of the ephod. And so while Gideon was still alive, because he set up this golden ephod, the people of Israel were set in motion to continue the worship of Baal. Now, what does Baal worship mean? We call it Baalism. It's a nice term, Baalism. But why does the ephod lead to Baalism? We're going to find out. And so we're going to look at the dynamics behind the snare of the ephod. When we look at Judges 8.27, let's analyze this so that we can break the pattern, so that we don't become victims of the pattern. Because we know in Scripture, we are warned that things happen again and again and again. We want to break that pattern today. And so we need to look into the snare of the ephod. Let's go back to Judges 8, verse 27. Bible says Gideon made it go into an ephod. The obvious question we need to ask is, what's an ephod? <laughs> right? What on earth is an ephod? Long ago, when Yahuwah was speaking to Moses and Aaron was still the high priest, he gave the following instruction to set apart the priest. Make sacred garments for Aaron. Who was Aaron? Brother of Moses, who was appointed by Yahuwah to be the high priest. So make sacred garments for Aaron that are glorious and beautiful. 
instruct all the skilled craftsmen whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. Have them make garments for Aaron that will distinguish him as a priest set apart for my service. These are the garments they are to make. A chest piece, an ephod, a robe, a pattern tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make the sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons to wear when they serve me as priests. And so we know during the days of Moses, Yahuwah set apart the office of the priesthood. Who can serve as priests? The sons of Aaron. Aaron being the high priest. If you were not a son of Aaron, you could not be a priest. Only the sons of Aaron can be priests. And to show that they're set apart, especially when they work in the tabernacle, Yahuwah says, give them or make for them sacred garments. So they have this attire. They have a priestly attire. And the priestly attire includes many art articles. One is an ephod. So an ephod was part of the attire to be worn by the priest. And so what is the ephod? The craftsman must make the ephod of finely woven linen and skillfully embroider it with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. It will consist of two pieces, front and back, joined at the shoulders with two shoulder pieces. So this is how the ephod looks like. So he, um, underneath the ephod, he has a robe, right? He also has a sash. There's a breast piece. But the ephod is what he wears after the robe. You see the ephod? It's in different colors, scarlet and blue and gold. You see the ephod? That's the ephod. So what do you do with the ephod? You wear it. Who gets to wear the ephod? The priests. Especially when they serve as priests in the tabernacle. So the ephod represents the authority given to who? The priest. It's something that you wear. That's the ephod. What does Gideon do? With the ephod, Bible says he gets the gold that he gets from the people, right? And he turns it into a golden ephod. So what we know, Gideon made an ephod made of gold from the resources of the people. So it's a golden ephod. And we know if we are to create an ephod, it's not made of gold. It's made of linen right and it's, it has different colors but Gideon kind of changes it first of all he has no right to wear an ephod because he's not a priest so he's kind of stepping across the boundaries of what he is entitled to when it comes to authority and power so Gideon kind of was not doing a good job here and so Gideon makes an, an ephod made of gold from the resources of the people. And what else does he do? He places his golden ephod in Oprah, his town. Remember, during this time, where was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was in Shiloh. Shiloh, in Ephraim, in the tribe of Ephraim. That's where the, the tabernacle was. But he places the golden ephod in Oprah, his own town. And so what could this be about? Bible doesn't tell us, but it could be that uh, Gideon wanted to have a priesthood or some kind of way by which they can be reminded of the tabernacle in their own home. So maybe that was his intent. It's like a reminder, or like, like a, uh, what do you call it? A monument uh, representing the, the authority that God has given the people of. Israel. So he places it in Oprah. It's interesting when you look at the word, the Hebrew word, which is translated placed or put, it's the Hebrew word yasag, which means to place, to set, to establish permanently. Okay, so it's a permanent um, structure. And so what he does with the ephod, not only does he make it of gold, which is of splendor. It's a glorious thing, right? Gold, 
he also makes it so that it's set up. It is placed. In other words, he doesn't use it to be worn, but to be displayed, right? This is why another translation of the Holy Bible, it says ephod set up in his city. And so it kind of stood there, it kind of he erected or he set up the ephod. And so when people look at it, they admire it for its beauty because it's made of gold. And so it's a glorious thing. And so when you see something beautiful to the eyes, what do you do? You're kind of enticed to worship it. You're kind of enticed to adore it because it's so beautiful. The glory of the golden ephod. So what we know, Gideon misused the purpose of the ephod by making an ephod made of gold from the resources of the people and the people worshipped that ephod. Bible even says all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And so the ephod was not purposely made to become an idol, but it effectively functioned as an idol. Why? Because of the devotion and the adoration that the people gave to the ephod. They loved the ephod, how it looked. And so they prostituted themselves and worshipped the ephod. So Gideon turned a good thing into an idol. The ephod represented something good. But this good thing became an idol. This is why... The ephod was a snare. What is a snare? It is a trap. A snare is something that is not apparent because the danger is hidden. When you call a trap a trap, it's because you don't see the danger, right? You're enticed to like it. You're drawn to it. That's what makes a snare a snare. But once you give in, all of a sudden you're trapped and you're going to be destroyed. You see? There can be this similar subtle shift from serving God to looking to other things that look like service to God, but are actually only stepping stones to full idolatry and serving the gods of the world around us. It happens all the time. When we study the history of religion, there are many things you know, that religious people do that when you look at it, you say there's something wrong with that. I mean, it sounds like it's biblical because they can back it up with biblical scriptures. But the problem is they misuse the scriptures. And so the good thing becomes an idol. It happens all the time. For example, many cathedrals, Catholic cathedrals in Europe, have been built from the offerings of worshipers who came to view and pray before the bones and relics of the saints. In the same way as Gideon's ephod, he became the focus of worship rather than the invisible God himself. I mean, this was the case when it came to the beauty. I don't know if you've ever seen the cathedrals of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages or in long ago. I mean, even today, if you go to Europe. So I've been told, I've never been to Europe, but one of the things that they do when they go to Europe is to go to Rome and you look at the St. Peter's Basilica other cathedrals of the Catholic Church, and they're in awe of its splendor. Beautiful cathedrals. You know how much money was put in to pay for that? The offering of the worshipers. But the focus shifted. Instead of worshiping the invisible God, the focus was on the grandeur of the houses of worship. And so what was good became no good anymore. You see that? Maintaining and beautifying a church building has become the focus of many churches today as far as their energy rather than the real worship and obedience of the Great Commission. And so many churches today, their emphasis, house of worship, building the house of worship for the glory of God. That's what they will say. Holy thing. Uh, holy things need not be evil in and of themselves. We're not saying a cathedral or a place of worship is evil. But they can become snares. You see that? They can become snares unless we guard against this very real possibility. 
And you know, the Catholic Church is not the only one that has an overemphasis on building new houses of worship. I came from a church organization called the Iglesia Nequista. This is from the God's Message magazine, pursuegoodonline.com. And so they have beautiful houses of worship. No one can deny that, right? Philippines, all over the world. And truth be told, there's nothing wrong with building a house of worship. There's nothing wrong with building a house of worship. However, when you misapply scripture concerning the house of worship, when you teach something that's not commanded by God, well, that's wrong. For example, in the article, God's Message magazine, this is what the Church of Christ says, the Church of Christ continues to obey the commandment of the Lord God to build the temple or house of worship, for in this he takes pleasure and is glorified. And they cite a passage, Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. And so they teach to the people, it's the command of God that we build houses of worship. They misapply Haggai chapter 1, verse 8. What is Haggai 1, 8 all about? It's about rebuilding the temple that was destroyed. What temple? The temple before Yahushua came. And so the command to build a temple, Haggai 1, 8, is not for us today. It was for the people of Israel after the captivity. Not for us today. The apostles were never commanded to build a house of worship. Yahushua never commanded to build a house of worship. And then they go on to conclude. Look at this. These sacred edifices are chosen by God as the place where he will hear all the prayers offered there by the people of his nation. And they may receive peace and his blessings. Being God's people in these last days, the Church of Christ members will devotedly uphold their duty to worship and praise the Almighty God in the house of worship. And so, according to the Church of Christ, the house of worship is now the place where God hears the prayers of his people. This is why that's where they worship. It's like the only place you can pray is when you're in the house of Worship, just like what my wife says, they kind of put God in a prison. <laughs> it's like you're stuck in that prison. You can't hear prayers anywhere else. You have to be in that place. But wait a minute. That may have been true before, but no longer today. Look at what the Archimia Husha says. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship because the temple was in? Jerusalem. Well, we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship. Yahushua replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. The time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So can we worship God outside of a place of worship? Yes, we can. Because we're no longer tied to a physical edifice. Those who can worship God are the ones who are in Christ, Yahushua. So we don't need a physical temple to worship Yahuwah. That's why it's wrong to teach that God commands his people to build houses of worship. There's nothing wrong with having a house of worship. But it's wrong to teach it's God's command to build a house of worship. I hope you can see the subtle difference. Okay, Another article from God's Message magazine. Right? Building houses of worship amid the pandemic. And they say seeing God's wondrous self manifest is not only the church's entire, in, uh, not only in not only the church's entirety, but also the lives of individual members, the Church of Christ can never be derailed by severe hardship brought by the pandemic and onslaught of calamities. This church will continue building houses of worship where God's love and goodness dwells. And so according to this God's Message magazine, the love of God and his goodness dwells in those buildings. Is that true? Nope. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, 
surely you know that you, did you get that? <laughs> you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. So if anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And you yourselves are his temple. The temple of God is not that physical building, that house of worship. No, it's not a sin. It's, it's good to have a place of worship of your own. But to say that the place of worship is where the spirit of God dwells, that's wrong. God's spirit dwells in the people. The people who belong to our king, Yahushua. So when the worship, when the house of worship becomes more valuable, then the worshiper, what is that called? It's called idolatry because they're not glorifying the temple. They're glorifying, they're glorifying a building. You're not supposed to glorify the building. You're not worshiping the building. When you do that, it becomes like a snare, an ephod. The snare of the ephod. You see, there's no scripture in all the Bible that commands us to build a house of worship. And there's nothing wrong. And I want to emphasize this again and again because you might misinterpret me. There's nothing wrong with building a house of worship. There's nothing wrong with having a house of worship of your own. But when you teach that God commands his people to build a house of worship and that his glory dwells there, then the house of worship itself is being glorified. Right? And becomes a snare like Gideon's ephod and a stepping stone to Baalism. Have you heard of Baalism before? Because after Gideon's death, the people of Israel were led to Baalism. But what led them to Baalism was the snare of the ephod. What is Baalism about? Well, what is Baal? According to the Canaanite philosophy and religion. According to the Canaanites, Baal was considered to be the god of weather, nature, and agricultural success. And back then, your success was determined by, determined by how many crops you have, how much cattle you had, right? And that's determined by rain or no rain. And so if you wanted to be wealthy materially, if you wanted success... Well, you have to kind of figure something out so that you can control the weather. Well, who is the one who controls the weather? Baal. And so Baal comes to represent the idolatry of materialism and human achievement. Sometimes when we are in a church organization, we tend to emphasize material success. How many members does it have? How many world records does it have? How many houses of worship has it built? You see, the emphasis is on the material, on something that looks splendid, the splendor and the grandeur of materialism. And so Baalism, when it was studied by the Watchtower Society, this is in one of their articles, take a look at this. Uh, where does man fit or where does man on earth fit in with Baalism? <laughs> I guess it's a real term. Uh, this ancient religion was more of a public institution, a community way of life than an individual experience. The great Baal was also considered to be the total of many local Baals, Baalim. The city or state community was married to its local Baal, and was thus fertilized to produce. Individuals were merely part of the collective whole subject to Baal's forces. So one thing we know about Baalism, they're united. It kind of emphasizes their unity. They're they function as a collective. You know, if they were to vote, they vote as one. That's what Baalism is all about, right? Baal to them was a real materialistic dynamic force to energize. It was just like a husband who brings to sexual fulfillment and, so to speak, energizes his wife. So the great god Baal could energize the soil to produce vegetation, and their local Baal could energize a living community of men and beasts, thus the collective self of the city being considered part of the personification of a local Baal himself. Many localities called themselves by his name, such as Baal Hermon. Baal Me'on, 
Baal Hazor, Baal Zephon, and others. These are all biblical places. It starts with Baal Hermon, Baal Meon, Baal Hazor, Baal Zephon. Why is it all called Baal? To emphasize their unity, that they belong to a collective. Baalism. It's when they celebrate their togetherness, their unity, their one. That's why everything is called Baal. And actually, this Baalism was a forerunner of modern nationalism. The collective self was pictured to be the local Baal, of which the individuals were a part, just as an individual American is part of the collective self called Uncle Sam. And the individual Britain is a part of John Bull. They hold to their distinctive national characteristics and traditions in which they take pride. Many modern nationalists are so emotionally moved when they see their national emblem pass by in parade that they have a reaction of goose pimples. And so what they're telling us in this religion called Baalism, what they have are distinct national characteristics and traditions. So they have traditions that they share and they're proud of these traditions. One of the traditions, one of the things that they rally around is this idea of a beautiful temple for Baal. This is why here's an example of a temple of Baal. And they would have the same types of structure, all these different Baal statues or Baal temples, it is all over and they take pride in it. It's like a, a sense of nationalism. They are together united under the banner of Baalism, which is materialism. And this is what the ephod, the snare of the ephod led the people of Israel to do. And so the practice of the religion became externally motivated and it was no longer an internal transformation which is what Jehovah wants that's what Jehovah wants but when it comes to religion motivated or influenced by Baal or Baalism we begin to worship the material and their religion is more externally motivated this is why even when Gideon was alive, the Bible says all Israel prostituted themselves worshiping the, 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 the ephod. And you might be asking, why all Israel? We're almost done, but this is important. Why did all Israel fall into idolatry and worship the ephod? The answer is found in Judges 8.22. Two reasons. This is why they were so prone to idolatry. Look at their motivation, right? In Judges 8.22, the Bible says, The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. So what does this tell us about the people of Israel? They did not care about the invisible God. They did not want faith. What did they want? A leader they can see. A leader they can respect. A leader who will rule over them. So that they don't have to study Torah. <laughs> Just tell me what to believe. Just tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. That's what they want. They wanted Gideon to just tell them what to do. Rule over us. You know the word rule? In, in Hebrew, it is masa. Hebrew word 4910, which means to dump dominion. To have dominion over. Oh, that's what they wanted. This is the forerunners of the Nicolaitans. That's what the people of Israel wanted. They wanted a ruler who will tell them what to do. So that they don't have to think for themselves. Right? That's number one. Number two. Look at how they revered Gideon. What did they say about Gideon? You saved us. They did not even think about the invisible God. All they saw was the visible Gideon. Gideon, you saved us. You know the word save used here in Hebrew? It is the Hebrew word yasha. What does that mean? 
to say, be saved, be delivered, applying to our Savior. Yahushua, the name of our Savior, the Christ, is from two words, Yahuwah, Yahshua. Yahuwah saves through Yahushua. And so the people of Israel, they regarded Gideon to be a Savior. They wanted a Savior that was on earth. And there are many religions today who call themselves Christians who operate on this principle. They have a leader that they can see who rules over them because that's what they want. And they even want the son and the grandson, the great-grandson perhaps, to rule over them. Why? Because they see them as Savior. Beloved brethren, this is where it begins. This leads. We're not going to break the pattern. This leads to Baalism, an emphasis in material things. And Apostle John warned us about that. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything you see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. You see, a religion that is influenced by Baalism, they will parade their successes, their accomplishments. They will be proud of all their possessions. They're going to emphasize that. But that's not what we ought to be emphasizing. And they will even say, we are now a glorious church because we have reached all these places and we have all these houses of worship. Look at our house of worship. They're glorious. We're a glorious church. But that's not the glorious church that Yahusha is looking for. What is that church that is glorious in the eyes of our King Yahusha? Let's read the final passage of our studies today. Ephesians 5, 25, 27. For husbands, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. Washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Our King Yahusha loves the church. That's why he gave himself up for the church. To cleanse the church. And to further cleanse it by means of the words of God. Because what matters to our King Yahusha is not the building. The greatness, the beauty, the splendor of the worship buildings it's not what makes the church a glorious church. It's not about the external. What about the internal? Transformation brought about by the word of God. And so the glorious church in the eyes of our King Yahushua, as taught by the Apostle Paul, how does that look like? Not the buildings. Not the snare of the ephod. Not Baalism. But what? Holiness. That's the glory of God. That's the glory of the church. The glory of the church, not the worship buildings. The glory of the church are the people who live a holy way of life. And this is what we need to strive to do. Because it is the holiness and the way we live that matters to Yahuwah Abba and Yahusha HaMashiach. Not the place of our worship. They're all going to be burned. They're all going to be burned. But the people who worship who live in holiness, they're going to live forever because they're the ones who matter most. When we glorify the place of worship, we are guilty of idolatry. We worship Yahuwah, the invisible God, and his beloved son, Yahusha, who sits in his right hand. That's our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Almighty and gracious Father, Yahuwah, Thank you so much for the clarity of your holy words. They serve as our guides that we might be alert to the work 
and the influence of the enemy of our faith. Father, we know that what you desire from your people are not worship buildings, but people whose lives have been transformed by your words and by your beloved son, that they live holy and upright lives. This is what we strive to do, that we are weak on our own. We desire your presence, the power of your Holy Spirit to transform our minds that we can fulfill the purpose of our calling. Our King Yahushua, we worship you and the Father. May you dwell in our hearts. We believe that we ourselves are the temple of Abba and you dwell in us because your spirit is in us. Races be unto you. Help us to work together as one so that we can proclaim your name, Yahushua, and the name of Abba, Yahuwah. Father, thank you for listening to our prayers. Bless your people throughout the world. Help us, Father, that we may glorify you more and more with each passing year in our life. May you heal those who may be sick among us. May you comfort those who are going through trials and tribulation and manifest your divine presence for the strengthening of our faith. We believe, Father, you have listened to our prayers, for we ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen.